we turn our eyes to jesus by turning our eyes to the scriptures because it is in the scriptures we find jesus but in order to do that we need the spirit's help to point us to the glories of christ so why don't we pray first and then uh, then go from there we we want to acknowledge to god our need of him to help us uh, see the glories of christ lord we do look forward to that time when every knee will bow and every tongue will shout uh, all glory to jesus alone but lord i pray that uh, we would not wait none in this room would wait until that day to say that uh, pray that every one of us would be able to say that even today by turning from our sins and turning to you jesus you are the pioneer you are the perfecter of our salvation you are the one who can start the good work in us and you are the one who can complete it so please we acknowledge our utter dependence upon your spirit today to help us to point to your glories as we look at the pages of scripture please cause every single person here to tremble before your word and to have a heart that seeks to submit to the glorious truths it is through our submission lord jesus we pray that you will get the glory for your name's sake we pray amen you know for the past 5 weeks now we have been going through a series on uh, repentance we've taken a break from the gospel of matthew we're going through the series a series that uh, that's titled i have sinned sign of false or true repentance we've already seen many topics uh, related to the subject of repentance in this uh, period topics like 10 characteristics of false repentance uh, what the old testament says about repentance what the new testament says about repentance and last week we started to look at seven characteristics of true repentance we looked at four in detail last week and uh, lord willing we'll look at uh, the remaining uh, three today uh, and lord willing uh, two weeks from today on june 18th when uh, still on for the baptism right uh, on uh, richie's baptism we're going to end this series uh, by looking at um, uh the subject of how to truly confess and repent of our sins we're going to look at one passage of scripture uh that uh teaches us how to rightly confess and repent of our sins i i felt that would be more fitting uh, uh given the occasion so uh, so uh that that's kind of a little recap and but before we look at the uh three characteristics of true repentance the last three of the seven Uh, i want to refresh our memory by once again going through the definition we've been looking at what biblical repentance uh, is and uh, and then uh, we're going to look at uh, two illustrations of uh, repentance in the new testament and then look at uh, the third one which we started last week the seven characteristics from that and then the reason why i want to look at uh, two more is uh, except for last week we've been looking at even in the new testament repentance in in the from from the view of uh, an unbeliever coming to faith you need repentance and faith to come to christ but when jesus said repent and believe he said that with the idea of keep repenting keep believing which means repentance and faith is not just at the entry point but it's an ongoing aspect of uh, being followers of christ so these three illustrations the one that we saw last week which will continue and the other two we're going to see today are illustrations of repentance in the lives of those who profess to be believers these are believers uh but these believers uh as we as we read we're going to find out how they as part of the christian journey display true repentance and i'm doing this for two two reasons reason number one it will help those of us who claim to be believers it will stress to us the ongoing significance the ongoing importance of continually repenting and two for those of you who are not yet christians it will help you to understand this is what christian life is supposed to be so you can understand and calculate the cost of what it means to be a follower of jesus and then 
prayerfully make the decision to follow Christ. Now you may think, well, the cost of following him is high. But let me also warn you, the cost of not following him is far greater. Because that's an eternal cost. But I want you to clearly understand what it means to become a Christian. So that's kind of the roadmap, if you will, for today's uh, sermon time. So let's start with the working definition of biblical repentance. We've been seeing for, guess what, about three, four weeks now. Biblical repentance, as we've been seeing, is a change of the whole person. Change of the whole person from sin to God. It's a turning. Turning from sin to God in thought, in emotion, and the will. And that will be evidenced outwardly by a life of obedience. See, first of all, our thinking should be affected. We should recognize, I am guilty. I have sinned. Second, that mentally uh, acknowledging things should affect our emotions. I feel sorry for my sin. I feel sorry. I feel a sense of shame. But we don't stop there. When the mind and the emotions are affected, it has to affect the will also. I want to turn from my sin and turn to you, Jesus, and accept the forgiveness you have offered to me through your finished work on the cross. And when that happens, that's inside, internally, you're affected. Mind, emotion, and the will. It will be, it must be, evidenced outwardly by a life of Obedience. The Bible does not describe repentance as merely a change of mind. It clearly describes repentance as a change of mind that will outwardly result in a changed life. The direction of a person changes from the inside out. The desires are changed and the deeds also follow along. Now the Bible it does not say, nor am I saying that a person has to actually live a changed life for a period of time before repentance can be considered as genuine. If that's the case, then repentance can be described as a work. But we've seen both faith and repentance are a gift from God. We saw last week three passages that clearly call for repentance as a gift from God. Acts 5.31, God is the one that brings or grants repentance to Israel. Acts 11.18, it's God who grants repentance to the Gentiles. And 2 Timothy 2.23-25, God granting repentance to all people. So repentance is not a human work, it's a gift from God. And that is why the Bible says, this God produced, God enabled repentance will be evidenced outwardly by a changed life. By a changed life. A changed life is the fruit of repentance. The result of true repentance, not the basis of it. So, what is biblical repentance? It's a change of the whole person from sin to God, in thought, in emotion, and the will. That will is important because in the first two sermons, we saw six examples of people who said, I have sinned. Some even felt remorse, Judas. But the last part was missing, the volition, that will to turn to Christ on the inside. And when there's this biblical repentance, this, this changing of the affecting of the thought, the emotions and the will, there will be evidence of an outward life of obedience. And this proof of, of a changed life in keeping a true repentance is clearly illustrated in the New Testament. We saw two weeks ago when we went through the what the New Testament teaches about repentance. We saw how John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, page 1375, how John, the New Testament, if you will, starts the gospel message with a call to repentance coming from the lips of John the Baptist, or more accurately, John the Baptizer, which six months later, Jesus does the same. In Matthew 3, 2, we read this. This is John the Baptist opening his preaching ministry. 
He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. Now notice, in response to his call, how so many people came forward to show their inward repentance outwardly by willing to undergo water baptism. Verses 5 and 6. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So they're showing, listen, John, we hear you. Inside, we're affected. So we want to show this inside repentance outwardly by going through baptism. And for a Jew to undergo baptism, that was unheard of. It was only Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism who would undergo this baptism. So this is the Jewish nation saying, we are guilty. We have not lived the way we ought to live. So in order to embrace the Messiah, we need to be prepared. So they come out publicly to confess their inward repentance by outwardly willing to get baptized. But notice among those who came, there were some who came who were not those who had true repentance on the inside. And who were those people? The religious leaders. And we see them opposing Jesus all throughout his ministry. So notice John's strong words to them in verse 7. But, contrast, here's people truly affected on the inside coming to show outside. But, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, they came just to check out what is going on. That they were more interested in this phenomenon that is happening. Not truly moved on the inside. Here where there's a crowd, we want to go check it out. Notice John's strong words. You brood of vipers. This is the religious leaders of the day. You snakes. You snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Verse 8, that's key. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's actually the language there is, the cutting has already started. That's the idea. It's there. Don't think just because you come to church. Don't think just because your parents are Christians. Don't think just because you even got baptized. Don't think just because you're a preacher. The axe is not going to come at you. The only way to avoid that axe is you better examine your life. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Isn't it clear that John here is insisting for a changed life on the outside as being the real evidence of genuine repentance on the inside. I cannot understand how people can redefine repentance when it's so crystal clear. It's shouting for a changed life. In fact, it was so clear, the original audience got the message. That is why they pose a question. Now, Matthew does not go further in this, but go two books to the right, Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 3, Luke 3, page 1462. You're using the church Bible here. Uh, let's pick it up from verse 10. Luke 3, verse 10. So same verses 7 through uh, 9. It's same what we read in Matthew. Uh, and in verse 10, so the crowd is asking, what should we do then, John? Give us some practical ways, practical applications to put what you just taught to us into practice. So notice what John says. Verse 11, John answered, Anyone who has two shares should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. So practical ways he's teaching them. This is how a changed life should look like. Sharing. When it comes to context of money, then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't exhort money. Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. It's interesting how much the thrust is on money. Isn't it? So you can see John is giving some practical examples and by doing that, he is telling his original audience and by extension us, true repentance on the inside will be, must be, evidenced by a changed life on the outside desires changed and when the desires are changed the deeds follow 
or should follow. And in the New Testament, there are several examples of truly repentant people outwardly showing their repentance in a changed life. Let's quickly look at two. And then we'll go back and pick up where we left off from the third one from last week. Number one, believers in Ephesus. You're in Luke. Two books past Luke is the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19, page 1582. Page 1582, Acts chapter 19. Background is Paul is preaching the gospel in Ephesus. Where is Ephesus? Modern day Turkey today. He's preaching the gospel. Many get saved. But amongst the many who got saved, who became Christians, a lot of them were involved in witchcraft, sorcery. That's how they lived before the gospel touched them. And then they get saved. And when they see the power of the Holy Spirit working through Paul, and now the conviction gets deeper, they realize, we cannot live like this anymore. So what happens? They come out openly and change profess their changed attitudes, their changed lifestyle. Acts 19, look at verse 18. Many of those who believed now came. Please look at that. those two words, now came. I'm not sure if all translations picked that up, but NIV for sure has it. Now came, meaning some of them were still holding on to their past sinful practices because these are already believers. But now they came. Many of those who believed now came. Don't miss that connection there. Why am I stressing on that? Because they had not made a clean break with their past yet. What tells me is this. At times, repentance may come a little slower for some believers. But sooner or later, it will come. It must come. The Spirit will not leave a genuine believer to continue to be in sin without producing a desire to turn from it and eventually giving them the power to turn from it. That should remind us, don't be too hard on other professing believers if we still see them displaying old patterns of sin. Yes, we should lovingly reach out to them, but let's not be too hard on them. Instead, let's be patient with them. Let's keep praying for them and at the same time continue to encourage them to change their way of life. When it comes to be hard on sin, it's best to be hard on our own sins. It's best to be hard on our own sins and seek to turn from them with God's help and then with a humble and a loving attitude reach out to others. Let's continue to read what happened in Ephesus. Verse 19. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. If you look at the footnote, a drachma was a silver coin worth about a daily, uh, a, a person's daily wages. I did a little calculation. 50,000 drachmas. The Jewish calendar is 360 days a year. So if you take out one day a week. That's 52 days. That's 308 days. I did a little calculation. So when you do that, there's about 180 people, one year's wages. These people come and burn it publicly. The point is, there was a lot of money here. A lot of money. But the believers didn't care. Why? Because now the spirit is working inside them. There's a godly fear on the inside that moved them to pursue a changed life on the outside. They knew, I cannot continue earning money the wrong way after becoming a believer. There's a work example here, workplace Christianity application. You cannot compromise the Bible to earn money, no matter what the ultimate intended good result might be. If I get this, I can help the poor. God doesn't need our money to help the poor. God cares about the means. So, they burn it. But then notice what happened. Verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. You see, when the church starts getting more serious about holiness, that serves as a catalyst for the gospel to spread. That's why a holy church is essential to spreading the gospel. The best advertisement for Jesus having the power to change lives is by people showing their own 
lives being changed by the gospel that they proclaim to unbelievers. That's the best advertisement, a holy life. A holy congregation. That's the best advertisement. Jesus does change. These people are coming publicly. They were making their livelihood. They burnt their entire livelihood. Think about that. Think about that. Here we are. A couple of dollars we don't want to let go. Because we want want to fuel our retirement accounts. Fancy homes, fancy clothes, fancy this, fancy that. We justify. Rationalize sin. Look at these people. So that's one clear example of believers outwardly displaying their inward change by turning from sin and practicing, pursuing a life of practicing obedience even when there was a huge cost. Second example is the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews chapter 10, page 1714. Go more closer to the end of the book. Hebrews chapter 10, page 1714. We're going to read verses 32 through 36. The book of Hebrews is written to a minimum of two audiences. One, those who made the profession of faith, but they're being persecuted for it. And the second is a group that's coming so close to embracing the gospel, mostly Jewish background, so close, but they've not made the final step across. But now they're on the verge of turning back. So the the writer says, you've heard all that can be heard. Don't turn away. Come on forward. And those who are persecuted, they feel like giving up. So the writer here is reminding them, look at how things happened when you initially became a follower and how you persevered. Now as the challenges keep getting more and more, don't give up. Go back to your own past experience. Look at verse 32. He calls them to be loyal to Christ even when there's a high cost. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, which means... When you became the believer, a believer, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison, and then notice what comes, and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property, not reluctantly. Joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You see their inward repentance and faith in Christ caused them to hold on to Christ initially when they came. Even when that obedience led them to lose all that they had in terms of material possessions and endure insult and persecution. Now notice The previous example in Ephesus, these people gave up the money that they earned in a wrong manner. Hebrews 10 doesn't say these people earned money in the wrong way. But yet when that money rightfully earned came between them and Jesus, they still were willing to turn their backs on it. Point is this, nothing, nobody can come between Jesus and us. That's the point. And they're proving it publicly. They were changed on the inside. The possessions that didn't own them anymore. They have a new master, Jesus Christ. They're slaves of Jesus. What a precious title. What an honorary, honorable title. Slaves of Jesus. You know. We know too. We go through those up and down experiences. There are times when Jesus is our treasure. We're willing to just lay it on the line. Other times, it's a different story. And that's where repentance kicks in. Right? You see, the, see them here. Outwardly they're saying, it says you joyfully accept it. Look at that emotion there. Yes, Jesus said, if my words remain in you, your joy will be full. We look at why am I not being joyful? Because his words does not remain in us in the sense of completely controlling us. We are not under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's why we walk according to the flesh, not controlled by the Spirit. In other words, we don't live a life of those of you who are in the FOF class being filled with the Spirit. Last Monday we talked about that, didn't we? It's right here. Where does the joy come from? It's the Holy Spirit who produces what? Joy. 
How does he produce? In response to obedience. And sometimes that obedience means I have to lay it all on the line. Not if others are laying it out. Not if my family is with me on this. Jesus is precious to me. I cannot but lay it all out on the line. So be careful how you earn money. Be careful how you even use the rightfully earned money. Be careful in your relationships. In everything. Nothing can come between Jesus and us. So these are believers. Remember, when you have the light, you become a believer. And then, following Christ called you to certain things. You didn't back out. The people in Ephesus, those believers in Hebrews 10. An inside out change from sin and self to God and His ways. Now, let's go back to the example of true repentance we started to see last week. The example of the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, please. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, page 1650. Page 1650. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In verses 8 through 11, we find one of the most powerful sections in all of the New Testament on the subject of true biblical repentance. Even though our main focus will be on verse 11, from which we're going to see seven characteristics of true repentance. Let's first look at verses 8 and 9, build up the context, and then touch on verse, seven, uh, verse 10, and then go from there. Verses 8 and 9 of Second Corinthians chapter 7. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, says Paul, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now, I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. As I mentioned last week, the letter Paul is referring to here, maybe First Corinthians, or most likely another letter he wrote after First Corinthians that is not part of the inspired canon. It was a strong letter of rebuke. But after writing it, Paul is concerned. I wonder how the church would respond. It's like you and me, you send an email out. Sometimes you wonder, how did the other person receive it? So Paul sends Titus to follow up. How did they respond? Now we are not told uh, what exactly is the nature of this sin that Paul is dealing with. Second Corinthians chapter 2 might be giving us a hint. Someone opposed Paul. Maybe when he confronted that person could be a false teacher or could be some people supporting the false teacher or could be the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who slept with his own stepmother. We're not given the details. But whatever it is, Titus comes back with the good news. Paul, they received your letter well. They truly repented. So Paul is happy about that. So, so he's telling, uh, listen, I'm sorry I had to write that. But it yielded the result I was hoping for. Even though in the short term, it caused me pain for causing you pain. In the long term, all of us are blessed because it produced that intended result. And what was the intended result, the intended effect that Paul was hoping for? Look at the second part of verse 9. Your sorrow led you to repentance. See again that sorrow has to be there. It led you to repentance. You did the right thing, he says, by turning from your sin. That's what repentance is. By turning from your sins. For you became sorrowful as God intended. You see Paul was clearly aware that there are, there are two kinds of sorrows as a result of our sin. Two kinds of sorrow. One is a godly sorrow which is a God produced, God, uh, God word, God enabled and God focused sorrow. The other one is worldly, self focused sorrow. He describes those two sorrows in verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and that has a result too. Brings salvation and leaves no regret. That's one kind of sorrow. Look at the beautiful intended result. Leads to salvation or deliverance does not leave any regret. Even though there's a cost there is no regret because there's the joy of obedience. But then there's a second kind of sorrow and that has a result too, worldly sorrow, contrast, but worldly sorrow brings death, eternal death. 
but paul was so comforted that the corinthians experienced a godly sorrow that sorrow that brings true repentance in keeping with salvation he was so joyful his rebuke to them brought that intended result but we need to stop and ask ourselves this question too on what basis was paul sure that their repentance was real what basis is he saying your repentance was real this was my goal for you to have this repentance and that goal was achieved on what basis could paul say that because of verse 11 seven characteristics he sees in their repentance it's on those seven characteristics on the basis of those seven paul says your repentance is a right repentance a repentance that pleases to god and is going to bring you genuine life let's quickly recap the first four we saw last week and then move on to the last three today characteristic number 1 what paul says the repentance produced was earnestness look at the text verse 11 see what this godly sorrow has produced in you what earnestness as i mentioned last week that word earnestness has the idea of great concern a hurrying a haste an eagerness eagerness to do what to set things right because they know i'm convicted i've, I've sinned there's an eagerness to do the right thing which is to turn to turn they didn't have a casual approach in dealing with their sin they approached that with a great seriousness and a sense of haste unfortunately what's our tendency often we take our own time to deal with our sins and when we do come around to dealing with it we do it in such a superficial manner sort of gloss it gloss over it in a few minutes and then move on there's too many other things to think about let me get practical this is as practical as it gets how we respond to our own sin if we lack this earnestness in our repentance it means we really don't care about the kind of holiness god demands number 1 or we are secretly harboring sins we just don't want to give up that's why we are not serious about dealing with it because if i don't want to get rid of something why would i want to look into it if i'm not serious about good health i'm not going to get rid of the junk so what we do a little bit of good health stuff a little bit of the junk keeps going i know touches a nerve for all of us but when it comes to sin we need to understand sin breeds sin sin breeds sin one hole as i said last week in a large ship sooner or later will sink it and you tolerate without any desire to turn from it and actually rip, turn from it not just talk about it but actually turn from it we do a lot of talking about turning from sin very little doing we may even weep over it but no cutting it off there will be a great fall if we have spent years sinning let's not be fooled by thinking that if we just take a few minutes to examine our lives that sin will go away sometimes it takes time lot of time to plead with god to show us show me my blind spots you see sin blinds us it actually blinds us of our blindness actually blinds us of our blindness so we need to go in earnest we have to have this sense of earnestness that's the first characteristic of a true godly sorrow that produces is god pleasing god produced repentance second characteristic that godly sorrow produces is this what eagerness paul says to clear ourselves that's this eagerness to clear ourselves see what this godly sorrow has produced in you what eagerness to clear yourselves that phrase what eagerness to clear ourselves has the idea again of not wasting any time or effort to clear oneself of all charges now don't look at this and say because typically what we do is we want to clear ourselves of all charges by justifying it or blaming it on others that's not what paul is talking about here he wants god 
to look at us and say, the slate is clean. And how does God do that? Only when we acknowledge it and go to him and ask him to cleanse us with the blood of his son. When we do that, that fellowship is restored. That's how we clear ourselves. Not by justifying, not by blaming it on others, not by hiding it, but by bringing it out in the open. The one who confesses and forsakes his sin finds mercy. Whoever covers it does not prosper. Proverbs 28, I believe it's verse 13. So you see how serious we need to get in terms of our daily time alone with God in confession. Daily. Because daily we accumulate sins. Daily we get dirty. Daily we need to go. Clear myself. Wipe the slate clean. There's only one thing that washes away all our sins. The blood of the spotless lamb. True believers must care for ongoing holiness. They must fear sin for what it mainly does. It robs God of his glory. Because when I choose sin, I'm saying, what sin gives me is better than what you have promised God. That was the delusion of Genesis 3. Adam and Eve chose to be independent. It's a delusion to be independent, to seek a life independent of God. We are dependent people, dependent upon God. Don't confuse freedom with independence. We are free to live the life God calls us, but again, that free is about being God-dependent to live a life that breaks, that breaks the power of sin in our lives. So eagerness to clear ourselves, that's the second characteristic. Third, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What indignation. That's the third characteristic, indignation. That word indignation means to be angry, to uh, experience a feeling of disgust. I am so angry, so disgusted with the way I have acted, God, for sinning against you, my creator, my savior. I am so uneasy in my spirit, Jesus, for being so unlike you in the way I treated so and so. It's an anger and disgust toward ourselves that goes right against the grain of the so-called self-esteem gospel that's promoted. We talked about this more last week. I'm not going to go into it. But the, the, this kind of a godly sorrow has a sense of inward anger. and uh, It's not, you know, like the anger that says, how could I have sinned? That's pride. Because it makes me look bad before others. No, that's not what we're talking about here. God, I feel, I feel so angry at the sin in what it's done to humanity and what's done to me and more importantly what it's doing to you. It's that kind of a holy indignation. That's what the Corinthians experienced. You see, our reaction to our own sin reveals a lot about our character. Remember Luke 18? We saw that in the fourth message. The Pharisee. He was so angry, felt so disgusted. Not about his sin, but the sin of the tax collector. But the tax collector was also disgusted. Right? That's what Paul is talking about here. That kind of an indignation. In fact, true believers must care so much about our holiness that we should welcome correction from others who point out our sin so that we can feel a sense of anger and shame for what we have done and are doing to our Creator, our Savior, our Redeemer, and turn. But sometimes we are so blinded that we are so convinced our act is not a sin when others correct us, we are angry at them. That's how sin can blind us. So indignation, that's the third characteristic of a true godly sorrow that produces this God-pleasing repentance. Number four in our recap, fear. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What alarm. What alarm refers to fear, which is an appropriate mark of genuine repentance. The Lord delights in those who fear him. Psalm 147 verse 11 we read earlier. Malachi 3, 16 through 18. The, the, the scroll is written on those who fear God. We read at the beginning of our service. What kind of fear are we talking about here? I believe the fear we're talking about here is a fear that what sin can do to my spiritual life. What, and if that sin is left unchecked, 
unconfessed unrepented what it can do to my eternal destiny that's the kind of fear we're talking about here what fear the corinthians experience that kind of a fear you see once again a repentant heart makes much of its own sin a repentant heart knows its own heart is so deceitful sin convinces our convinces our hearts it's not so bad or it's not so urgent you need to deal with it that's why we don't have this sense of fear i'm shaking in my boots for crying out loud we are so fearful when we do something wrong in the workplace we don't have even an ounce of it at times when we so blatantly sin against our creator and joyfully justify it to others the only way to prevent our hearts from being deceived because when we don't deal with our sin right away heart keeps getting harder and harder the only way to prevent the heart from getting harder and harder is to continually cultivate a broken and a contrite heart is a submissive a heart a heart that continually fears sin a heart that continually fears robbing god of his glory a heart that genuinely fears bringing damage not just to self but to family extended church family and even to unbelievers that's the kind of heart we must be cultivating constantly and that kind of a heart comes only when we fear god and fear what god hates which is sin where there is the presence of genuine repentance where there is the presence of genuine godly sorrow there will be without a doubt the evidence of a heart that fears taking sin lightly so four characteristics we've seen let's move on to the fifth one longing look at what paul continues to say see what this godly sorrow has produced in you what longing that word longing has the idea of craving sometimes that word craving can be used in a negative sense like jesus says the people of the world they run after what things to wear what to eat what to where to live things like that but believers should also be marked by a longing a craving a holy passion and in this context it is in terms of turning from sin what longing the, the, the corinthians were were wanting to run after god and then they know that they cannot run after god if they don't deal with their sin rightly so they're running to set that sin or to offset that sin by repenting in part of running toward god we cannot run toward god and hold on to sin those are completely two opposite directions we cannot do that we just cannot do that i cannot cherish sin and cherish god at the same time they're incompatible they were longing to repent and set things right they knew that was the way to being ba- back on the path of righteousness and continue to run in the narrow path so paul commends them for it you see when we sin we need to ask ourselves question do i long to acknowledge my sin do i long to feel sorrow and shame over my sin do i long to turn from it if that attitude is there then there is hope there's a mark of godly sorrow that is in keeping with true repentance i tell you what we truly long for tells us who we really are ask yourself what desires typically dominate your thinking especially when you have those empty moments especially at night when you cannot sleep and you're tossing in your bed what does your mind keep going to again and again and again what does it crave does it crave god his kingdom his righteousness his pleasures or does it crave wealth pleasure popularity illicit immoral relationships something that a unbeliever typically longs for in the heart of a truly repentant person where the holy spirit is working there must be a constant longing to be like christ and every sin that hinders from that goal affects it deeply and that heart is grieved and longs to turn back to god if there is no such longing let's not deceive ourselves into thinking we're genuinely repentant people we are not 
no matter what we say to others, no matter what we convince ourselves. So the fifth characteristic here of genuine repentance is a longing for God and his righteousness that moves a person to turn back from sin and to God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they and they alone shall be filled, said our Savior in Matthew 5. Sixth characteristic of godly sorrow that leads to true repentance is concern. Notice what Paul goes on to say. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What concern. That word concern in the original conveys an attitude of deep, earnest concern. Some translations, actually I prefer translations that have it as the word zeal. Zeal. Now this attitude of zeal, again, can be towards something sinful or something that's godly. In Acts 5.17, it describes the Pharisees. They had a zeal. They were filled with jealousy when they saw the crowds following the apostles. So that's not the concern we're talking about here. Here the Corinthians had this kind of a concern, this kind of a zeal to repent. To repent. That they wanted to do what is right in God's sight. In this case, repent over their sin. In our day, if you take the Christian life very seriously, don't be surprised. Even professing Christians around you can say, hey, take it easy. Don't burn out, they warn you. Now, yes, we should be careful not to burn out. Absolutely, there's no doubt about it. But folks, let's ask ourselves, is our problem really the danger of burning out? Or is, or is it the danger of rusting out? We're burning out, running after our own pleasures. And the little we give for God, we feel, oh, it's too much, I need to take a break. But we never talk about taking a break when it comes to other non-essential things. We always have to make the choice of do I choose the excellent over the good? Often the choices are not between sin and good. Choices between good and excellent. Here, there's a holy zeal to set things right. Set things right. Look at the believers in the early church. What zeal? Look at believers even today in places where there's much persecution. Look at the holy zeal for them to do the right thing. They have frequent prayer meetings. They call that as, you know, confession and repentance meetings. And those meetings go for long periods of time. And often they do it where they openly acknowledge and ask people to help, help me to turn from my sin. When was the last time you were in a prayer meeting? Someone said, would you please pray that I, for, for me to overcome my gossiping nature? We cover it up. Pray that God will help me to speak the right things. Why can't we name what the right things we're struggling against with? You know, gossip, slander, lying, laziness. When was the last time you heard someone ask you in a prayer meeting for that? Would you pray, I'm really lazy? Pray that God will help me to read the Bible more. Okay, why aren't you reading the Bible more? I'm lazy. You know that proverb is that bed creaking, turning? That creaks, turn, 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 like the door turns on the hinges we're too tired tired from what drinking the glories of self pleasure holy zeal to do the right thing it makes us you know when we have this kind of a concern this kind of a zeal we will want to set things right in the context of sin here I'm saying do we pursue reconciliation with people with whom the once strong relationships have now been broken do we have this kind of a zeal? I want to take the first step. Or do we say, let them take the first step. I tell you a heart that is filled with deep concern for the things of God. A heart that is filled with a fervent zeal for God and for his glory will not wait. It will put Hebrews 12, 14 to practice. Pursue peace with all people. Run after. That, that, that word pursue there or make every effort has the idea of a wild animal going after its prey. That's the imagery there. When it comes to reconciliation, we run the other way. Or just for namesake, we say, I forgive you, but never having the idea of reconciliation. The goal of true forgiveness is always reconciliation. God just doesn't forgive us and let us go. We were reconciled back to him. Is my heart, your heart like that? Do we have that kind of a holy zeal to do that which pleases God? God. If not, are we not deceiving ourselves into thinking I'm fine 
No, we are not fine. We're on the broad road. Finally, seventh characteristic that godly sorrow produces. This is important. I believe and I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit through Paul lined up each of these in a particular sequence and put the seventh one as the last. I hope you'll see it in a minute. What is the seventh characteristic? Readiness to see justice done. Notice what Paul says here. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What readiness to see justice done. Now, let me also refer to how other translations put this. The New Living Translation has it as such a readiness to punish wrong. The NASB puts it as what punishment of wrong. ESV has it as what punishment. And CSB has it as what justice. I think the CSB comes a little closer to the NIV. But honestly, I think other than the NIV in this, every other translation can be a little misleading. Can be. I'm not saying it is. Can be. How so? Take the ESV and NASB as an example. It talks about what punishment. It's easy to conclude Paul is referring to the truly repentant having their revenge someday on those who persecuted them or that God will avenge their enemies on their behalf. But that totally misses the point here. What Paul is saying here is this. He's talking about restitution. If I have sinned, I want to make sure justice is done. I do the right thing. That's Paul's point here. This whole context is about I have sinned. What do I need to do to make things right? What do I have to do to see justice is done? Repentant people realize my sinful actions have caused damage. What do I do? What can I do? Apart from you know, acknowledging to God and confessing and all that. What can I do? You see the Bible, both in the Old and the New, call for restitution. In Numbers 5, verses 5 through 8, Old Testament talks about restitution. And in the New Testament, we have a good example here, even though it's not clearly called for. That was the response of a repentant heart. Remember, there was a chief tax collector. Zacchaeus, Luke 19, Jesus comes to his home, he's turned from his sin on the inside, and what does he do on the outside? Luke 19 verse 8, Look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, much more than what even the Old Testament required for restitution. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, if, (laughs) really, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So what is Zacchaeus doing? Jesus didn't tell him you need to do it. A truly repentant heart where the Holy Spirit is working will seek to follow through with restitution. And what was Jesus' reply? Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. He's proved his repentance is real. He's proved his salvation is real by what he just offered to do. Zacchaeus confirmed his repentance was a Holy Spirit prompted, a Holy Spirit given repentance, a repentance that would lead to life. A worldly sorrow, would, it's not what Zacchaeus displayed. It was a God-produced, God-word, God-honoring sorrow. This is what John the Baptist said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's exactly what Zacchaeus did here. And it didn't take him long to do that either. And he didn't have to be pushed, his hand twisted to do this. It came out of his own heart. That's the result of the Holy Spirit working in a person's heart. <clears throat> he did it because a truly repentant heart seeks to see justice done. This proves to you and me, doesn't it? Godly sorrow that leads to true repentance calls for action. If you notice, <coughs> excuse me, the first six characteristics were inward. Look at verse 11 with me real quick. What earnestness what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern. Stop there. That's all inward. But then look at the last one. What readiness to see justice done. That's outward. Remember our definition of biblical repentance affects the thought, the emotion and the mind 
that will outwardly be evidenced by a life of obedience. We you see all that coming together in this beautiful one verse. So that's why Holy Spirit lined up these words. Who am I to say he knows what, is, what we need? That's why every single one of us professing to be Christians must go back through our life of sin and make sure if there are instances from the past that requires us to make restitution, we must be willing to do it. This may mean returning money where needed. This may mean asking forgiveness if we have hurt someone. This may mean if we gossiped about someone, slandered about someone with lies or because we didn't have all the information, or if we hurt someone with words, we go back. Not only ask forgiveness to that person, but also set the record straight with others where we spread those things. Hey, I told about this person, I'm sorry, it was wrong. That's the outward evidence. It's not like, I just confess to God, everything is good. Which is what we typically do because it doesn't cost us much. We barter with God. What's the least I can do? To please you. But that's not what the Bible teaches. If I'm angry and really ashamed for who I am. More than what I have done. Especially to the one. When I look at who he is. And what he is worthy. Why would I want to hold back? Why would I not want to see justice done? Imagine if Christians all over the world took this truth to heart. Just imagine, just picture that. Live in a fantasy world with me for 30 seconds. Marriages. Extended family relationships. Church relationships. People who are once in good fellowships, broken. If believers say, I will outdo you in coming and seeking forgiveness from you. Somewhere in our heart says, that's not possible. It's just not real. Because we're so corrupted in our thinking. But imagine what a testimony the church will have of the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus. Isn't the tragedy of our day professing Christians act as if they never need to set things right with people because, hey, we... It's a private issue. I've asked Jesus to forgive me. Yes, certain sins are private. We get it. But not everything is private. Bible calls forgiven people to still make restitution where appropriate as a proof of being truly forgiven. Let's be warned where there is no evidence of seeking to right the wrongs, the desire to see justice done. There's absence of true repentance. Let's make sure we're not such people, but are people who long to set things right, to set the wrongs right, to have a heart that seeks justice to be done. That's the seventh and last in our list of characteristics that mark true repentance. So seven characteristics. Number one, earnestness, having this great concern, this haste and eagerness to deal with our sins. Number two, eagerness to clear ourselves, not by hiding, not by justifying, not by blaming others for our sin, but by acknowledging, expressing sorrow over it and going to Jesus and asking him to cleanse us, wipe the slate clean with his blood. Number three, indignation, having this feeling of disgust, a shame and sorrow and, and, and anger for the way we have behaved. Number four, fear. Fear of what sin can do to our spiritual life and to our eternal destinies, not to mention the people around us. A repentant heart, remember folks, always makes much of its sin. If you don't remember anything else in today's message, just remember this. A repentant heart makes much of its own sin. Number five, a longing, a craving in the positive sense, a desire to seek after Christ and anything that hinders to remove that number six concern, a holy zeal to do what is right in God's sight when we have sinned. And number seven, number seven, that outward display, readiness to see justice done. In a simple word, restitution. Restitution. That's why 
Paul could conclude verse 11. We're not done with verse 11 yet. Back to the text. That was only first part of verse 11. Don't worry, I'm not going to keep you long. This is why Paul could say, at every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Because these seven marks are in you, these seven characteristics of true repentance, that is why he says, you have proved yourself. You've shown. In this instance, the Corinthian church was messed up. We get that. But I'm glad this happened within the Corinthian church. You know why? Because it gives me hope. If these guys can have display that change, I have some hope. Just this bit. I'll cling to it. God knows what he's doing. It's such a beautiful, beautiful passage. I, 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 anyway, there's so much to be done here. But, but you see, that's why Paul could say. So he's not saying your repentance is genuine in a, in a vacuum. He says these are concrete evidences that you really have experienced godly sorrow that leads to repentance the way God intends and to life. we have these, we can be assured our repentance is genuine. Yes, we will never be perfect in our confession. We will never be perfect in our repentance. But that's no reason for pursuing growth in that area. Remember when we went through the Beatitudes? I said, we can never live the Beatitudes to perfection. There's one who lived it. But the joy is in the pursuit of it. In the same way, what, what the text teaches us is, this kind of a relentless pursuit to have this kind of a repentance in our lives is yet another proof that God is working in us. It's not about arriving. We never arrive, so to speak. That's only when we see Christ face to face. But then the goal is, am I constantly moving towards that? Do I want to be a repenting repenter? That's the issue. And for those, those of you who have not yet turned from your sins and turned to Jesus, would you please cry out to him to enable you to do that today? Ask him, Jesus, help me to repent this way. Don't try to do it on your own strength. You cannot. It's impossible. Ask him to produce that in you. Jesus said not once but twice in Luke 13 verses 3 and 5, unless you repent, you will perish. Don't think you're the exception. You're not. You have to turn to Jesus. You must accept Jesus as your Savior. He is the one that died on the cross for your sin. Nobody died. And more importantly, no one rose again. Jesus rose again. So please, turn from your sins. Turn to Jesus. Be washed in his blood and live. Let me close with four warnings of delaying repentance. Four warnings. Warning number one, danger number one, heart becomes harder over time. If you delay repenting, even this is for a believer, if you delay repenting, heart becomes harder the longer you refuse to turn from your sin. Number one, danger. The same sun that melts the wax also hardens the clay. We have to be for broken and a contrite heart, then we must melt at God's word. Number two, danger number two, God's patience has its limit. God's patience has its limit. God waited for decades for the people in Noah's time to repent, but when they still didn't, his patience ran out and the flood came, it was too late. One day the Holy Spirit will stop convicting you of sin and even the need to turn to Jesus and then it truly lights out on the inside which will be evidenced by lights out on the outside when you leave this world. Eternal hell. Danger number three, death may come any time. You have no guarantee of one more hour, one more minute, one more day. So don't delay. Turn from your sin. Danger number four, and this is the worst of all, hell is forever. You cannot repent in hell. Repentance is only for this life. So, acknowledge, bow your knee as we sang earlier. Acknowledge with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Bow your knee, say he is king, he is the only savior. Cry out to him, please Jesus, help me to turn from my sin and turn to you 
Wash me in your blood and help me to live. Let me be born again. May that be the cry of your heart. Father, I pray that you work all these truths in our hearts. Jesus, your glories are revealed in the scriptures. And your spirit alone can bring these glories out. And a weak human vessel I have endeavored. Forgive my flaws. Overrule my mistakes as you always do. And still bring that intended result that Paul sought when he wrote to the Corinthians and which I seek and I've sought as I work through this message, working through this series and as I'm proclaiming that we all need to be marked with this kind of a godly sorrow that leads to the kind of repentance that is true and pleasing in your sight and ultimately brings forth new life and also gives proof that we will experience that new life in all its fullness with you. Jesus, you said, I have come that they may have life. Give life to those who don't have that life, but also you said that they may have life to the full. So help us, Lord, who have experienced that life to live it to the full. That your spirit will help us to be ongoing and continual repenters, Lord. So please do this work in our heart. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.